Hello, friends. Welcome to Nexus, a smart buildings technology podcast for smart humans. I'm your host, James Dice. If we haven't met before, I write a weekly newsletter on this same topic. It's also called Nexus. Each week, I share what I've learned, my opinions, and what I'm excited about in the quickly evolving world of intelligent buildings. Readers have called Nexus the best way to stay up to date on the future of this industry without all the marketing fluff. You can check it out and subscribe at nexus.substack.com or click the link in the show notes. Since starting the Nexus newsletter, many of you have reached out to me wanting to talk shop, and we have. After a few weeks of those wonderful conversations, I realized I needed to record and share them with our growing community. So here we are. The Nexus podcast is born. This is our chance to explore and learn with the brightest in our industry together. One more quick note before we get to this week's episode. I'm a researcher at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, otherwise known as NREL. All opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to me or the guest. No resources from NREL are used to support Nexus. NREL does not endorse or support any aspect of Nexus. Episode 16 is a conversation with Brad Pilgrim, CEO of Parity Inc. Brad breaks down the application of smart building technology in multifamily residential buildings, including how that's different from other verticals and why it's such a unique niche. We unpack Parity's solution for that space, which, as a longtime resident in multifamily buildings myself, sounds like a perfect product market fit. Brad shares how the pandemic has changed residential energy consumption patterns and why that has actually driven more demand for the Parity solution, and much, much more. This episode of the podcast is directly funded by listeners like you who have joined the Nexus Pro membership community. You can find info on how to join and support the podcast at nexus.substack.com. You'll also find the show notes, which has links to Brad's LinkedIn page. Oh, and by the way, if you take a look at your podcast feed and you're missing episodes 10, 12, and 14, that's because those episodes are exclusive to members of Nexus Pro. Sign up for a pro membership now to get your personal podcast feed with access to all the episodes. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast episode 16. All right. Hello, Brad. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. Can you introduce yourself for everyone? Yeah, James, thanks for having me. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Parity Inc. We're a constant commissioning platform for building HVAC systems with a concentration on energy management, CO2 reduction, and data and analytics. I spent about five and a half years in two different energy startups, one based in the US and Utah. The other one was a Canadian company, solar company that ended up buying a piece of technology in South Park, San Francisco, and ended up expanding into like 32 states were acquired by NRG. So great company, got to work really closely with a lot of the founders, learned a lot about startups and eventually found myself on the consumption side of the energy equation. And that's really where parity plays. Got it. Yeah. So can you take us through the kind of the founding story of Parity? Like what led you to start it? Yeah. So I guess Parity started out of somewhat of a personal need. You know, work, working in the solar industry really opened my eyes. Like the, the, the very first solar company really opened my eyes to like what I really wanted to do, having a bigger purpose, being able to get up in the morning and have meaning. I won't go too far into the backstory of that. But uh, I think the bottom line was, is I, I, I moved to Toronto and I was living in a condo and it was actually my friend's condo and he moved to Hong Kong and I was staying in his condo and they had a special assessment done. And 
you know, in a, in a condominium in North, in North America, it's, they're usually structured as nonprofits. So all revenues to maintain the building come from the residents within the building or the owners within the building. So I had the special assessment done and the fees were going up by like 21, 18 to 21%. And I was like, wow, that's, that seems like a lot. You know, I knew that I had actually invested in condos and I knew that sort of the name of the game was like, keep those fees low because that's a, that's a big part of your cost of owning a condo, you know, very different than owning a home, but you know, in comparison, um, actually more sustainable. So sort of have your mortgage and then you have your condo fee. It's say on average, you know, a condo fee represents about half of your mortgage. But in this case, it was like inching up to like three quarters of what I knew the mortgage was. And so very high cost per square foot for maintenance. And so I got curious and I said, you know, like what, why is that, right? Uh, I didn't know a lot about reserve funds, energy budgets, the way the condos were managed. Uh, so I went to an AGM and then I eventually ended up getting hold of the budget. I knew how to read through a, you know, a budget and the balance sheet. And the realization that I had coming from the industry was the energy line, so the utilities line in a condominium's operating uh, budget was like 35, 40% of the budget. And that was gas, electricity, and water. And, you know, coming from, uh, again, the energy industry, I knew that there was technologies that made HVAC systems more efficient and could make pumping more efficient. And I knew our variable frequency drives and the potential of them. You know, I thought that every single building must have a standard operating system, right? Like there's no way it just has an on switch. So, you know, sort of diving into it, I asked the poignant question. I said, what have we done as far as energy efficiency? And the answer I got back was, we've done everything we can. We've changed our LEDs. And I think by that point, I was like, got it. Okay, so your understanding of efficiency and energy optimization or efficiency is uh, is LEDs, right? Which is sort of like that classic like light bulb moment, right? Everybody understands a, a light bulb and consumes energy at uh, 60 watts. If you install a 15 watt LED, it's obviously less. The math is simple. So that's really what started this whole sort of, in, you know, I embarked out onto a, a research journey and and then the second sort of key milestone was when I was, I think I was reading actually an NREL paper, but I, I came across the statistic, 40% uh, of CO2 emissions come from buildings. And I, right there, I was like, okay, like, I think I found something worth sort of diving into. And anyway, so fast forward, I actually ended up meeting my co-founder. He had years and experience with heavy equipment was also a senior partner at a large uh, big four consulting firm uh, here in the GTA and uh, just a wealth of knowledge, definitely bringing the tech brains for everything. I'm I was bringing more of the, the business sales financial side of it. But, you know, over the course of six months, we worked together to really identify the opportunity that, you know, Parity is currently addressing and start out the company. And yeah, that was uh, like three years ago. So it's, it's been an incredible journey and, you know, I, I probably don't have all the time on this podcast to go through that, but yeah, that's, that's really sort of how we got started. Cool. I can totally relate to that story. Having owned a condo and having had assessments placed on, on me personally, very annoyingly, you know, you don't plan on those things and they just happen and you really have no choice to pay them. Right. It's just like within the next six months, you will pay this payment and you don't have any much to say about it. Yeah. So I definitely understand how that works. I can also understand like wanting to scratch your own itch. Cause like, that's what Nexus is. So solving your own problem is like often, you know, the greatest reason to start a company because you're obviously intimately familiar with it. So, yeah. So I want to dive into the, the platform in a minute, but I thought I'd ask like, with you being 
kind of a, a startup in the smart building space, I think one of the relevant questions for someone like you is like, how are you attracting talent to a startup in this space, especially tech talent? Because I think one of the things I've heard from tech companies, especially new tech companies, is that it's hard to get, say, a young person that could go work at Google or Facebook to you know, decide, hey, I really want to tackle this smart buildings thing. And I think once they do get started in our industry, they're often scared away because it's a mess and our technology is 20 years behind. And like, it's, it's a really difficult, really juicy problem. And I think that's what attracts me to it. Cause I'm like, this is an amazing problem. And it's, you know, there's so many layers, but how are you getting people to take that plunge and say, you know, I want to solve this problem with my career? Yeah, it's a good question. Starting out, it, it wasn't, you know, the, the so-called the sexiness. Yeah. Of the HVAC, you know, energy industry that drew me towards it. It was, in fact, the problem. And, and what seemed like, especially in the vertical that we're in, a very difficult problem to solve. I thrive on that. You know, I probably landed a lot of places in my career because people said either it's too hard to do or you can't do it. So that's sort of what got me really interested in it was this looks like a, a challenging problem and a lot of people have said they can't solve it. And I think that actually is what a lot of, I'd say, younger entrepreneurial type, you know, gig economy type people are looking for is, you know, there's actually been numerous sort of papers and articles out there on like, what are people looking for, the youth looking for in today's sort of working environment. And I, I think there's a bit of a stigma of like, people think startup and they go like, oh, you're all on like beanbag chairs and you know, you, you, you all drink all day long. And there's this, you know, really ever flowing youthful culture in, in the startup world. And, you know, I, I won't say that that's not completely untrue, but, you know, I think as startups have grown from, you know, the days of building a lot of things in a garage to people learning from those lessons and understanding that, you know, you can build startups sustainably if you have the right team and the right people in place. We have that as a core value is we, we really cherish and sponsor and support innovation and people that want to really break the status quo, be markets disruptors. And, you know, and, and it's just a, a culture of, of a playing, right? Is we, we want to be able to bring people on that feel, you know, they're the top of their game. They want to be pushed further. They want an environment to share those really innovative ideas, ideas that they may not share in other places, and then try them, right? So get a, an open environment to actually try them. It's something we encourage is, you know, try things. And yeah, it's, you know, things are going to go wrong, but you know, it's okay if you do it in a controlled environment. You know, you, you sort of have to take the shots if you want to figure out if you're, you're going to make one of them. But how that translates to attracting new talent, it's purposeful. We're not attracting, you know, hundreds of employees we're not trying to, right? It's uh, we're on a growth curve, probably to, to double our employees and say the next 12 months. So go from a team of about 35 to about 70. And a lot of our talent exists in obviously engineering, uh, that's mechanical, electrical, HVAC or mechatronic, and obviously in development. So computer science and computer engineers. But, uh, you know, I'd say on the whole, they're really interesting problems that we're solving. And through the work that we've done with a collaboration with uh, Ryerson University's building science team, you know, we're, we're collecting a ton of data and having that data usable in a way in a really unique domain and having the, the models built to be able to build machine learning algorithms. That's really interesting for a lot of people. Uh, we find that from an engineering perspective and from a development perspective, 
people really want to dive into that and learn more. Like AI is a very a new industry. And I think when people think about AI, they, they generalize and they may not understand that AI is actually this big umbrella and there's all kinds of AI underneath it. And, you know, AI existed in things like Excel spreadsheets, right? Google Maps, a decade, you know, from an if and else statement all the way to, a, you know, a reinforced learning algorithm. These are all classified as AI. So I think between the, the purpose of what we do, uh, which is obviously addressing, you know, CO2 emissions in urban centers or making urban living sustainable, having an open environment for people to, you know, test theories and, and do modeling and, and maybe do things that they wouldn't be able to do at larger corporate companies, but also having something really interesting to play with. I think all of those things combined, and then obviously with a very good leadership team, sort of the established, you know, senior executive team, people want to work for people that they look up to that, you know, they, they have a lot of interest in and, and they respect. So I wouldn't say it's one small thing. It's probably a combination of, yeah, finding everything that attracts those people and, and trying to create an environment of, of continuous learning and, and development. Cool. I love that answer. It's like, yeah, obviously it's not just the sexy tech. It, obviously it's not just the team. It's everything. So let's dive into kind of the problem you guys are solving. And and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because I, I don't, besides living in multifamily buildings for the last, I don't know, 15 years, ever since I moved away from home when I was 17, um, I've been living in apartment buildings, right? So in, in different cities, but I, I don't know that I understand the problem from um, a professional standpoint. It's more just like living in these buildings and not giving a whole lot of other thought to it. So how are, you know, multifamily buildings and how is like specifically the analytics world, um, analytics technology, what are the ways in which that's different from, say, you know, your other sorts of commercial buildings, you know, hospitals, offices, that type of thing? Yeah, it's a very big question. So I'll pick a couple things out of it because yeah. I think like you and myself, you know, when you move away from, from home and you want to move into a big city, the, the likelihood of you buying a house or uh, renting a house, it's probably quite low probability compared to moving into a condo, right? You know, that combined with cities obviously discouraging urban sprawl and building up and that becoming more economical and the construction industry finding innovative ways you know, to build faster. I think that's, that's really why you and I have probably both landed in condos. But it is funny, you move into a condo, even most people that buy a condo, they have no idea how the actual structure of the company or the corporation works. Me being a good example, move into a condo and, you know, special assessments done. I mean, what's a special assessment? You know, and it's like, you, know, you get a budget and you're like, oh, there's a budget. Like, right, that makes sense. Sure, there should be a budget. And then you find out like, oh, there's a board, right? Oh, I didn't know there was a board. How do you get on the board? And then you find it's like a bunch of volunteers and you're like, wow, there's this whole company going on in this thing that I'm living in. And I have to share it with, you know, 500 to 1,000 other people. And, you know, one of, one of the big nuances to condos is it's, uh, it's sort of like a house, but 500 people living in a house. So uh, those 500 people are all responsible for the mortgage, the cleaning, maintenance, you know, the energy costs, mowing the lawn, shoveling the driveway. And those are things you don't think of from at least a cost and operational perspective when you move into a condo. You know, I think most people think of it like a hotel, right? You move in, someone's taking care of that stuff, which I think one of the concepts behind condos is you don't have to worry about mowing the lawn, shoveling the driveway, right? It's a, 
It's part of the benefit that comes with it. So, you know, from that perspective, just an overall understanding, it's very different. And I feel that, again, a lot of people that move into them don't really understand that. From a organizational structure perspective, condos and co-ops are, are the vast majority of the time, they're nonprofits. Uh, so nonprofits are uh, structured in a way where all the fees to run the nonprofit are coming uh, from an internal source, right? So in this case, in a condo, it's the 500 people living in the house. And really what that means is if you and I and 500 other people who, you know, at least in, in respect to parity, you know, 500 other people who probably don't know energy as well, don't know HVAC systems, energy efficiency, maybe understand that, you know, again, roughly 25% of their condo fee is actually based on energy, water, or cooling, heating, movement of air. They understand that there's a way to manage that, right? It's sort of an afterthought. I think if you're not in energy, it's even really hard to understand your energy bill. You know, if the solar days really made that pretty evident to me talking to homeowners about their energy bill. And they're like, I just have no idea what it says, right? Mm-hmm. I know what a number, I have to pay that number if I want to keep the lights on. Yeah. So that's, you know, again, it's a, it's a really unique aspect of condos. And I, I'd say lastly, the economics in a condo are structured in a way that it's really like the least amount of dollars out of everybody's pocket. Right. And I mean, from a, a costing perspective, that is the way that you want to look at it. Right. I want to put the least amount of dollars out every single month to maintain my asset. The problems that come with that are you may not have the most, say, you know, pragmatic team looking at those problems and maybe better ways to solve them. It's really just keep as much money in the owner's pockets as possible. That doesn't leave a lot of room for innovation. Mm. And long term thinking, probably, too. Right. Absolutely. And that is. I'd say one of the biggest barriers or challenges in the multi-res sector compared to the commercial or mush sector is that in you know the commercial sector, largely driven for-profit corporations, usually lots of building management teams or building operators, usually full-time. That is the benefit you have with a for-profit. You can include that into a, a costing budget and obviously base your profit or your, your leasing costs on that. Usually room for large engineering projects the decision makers in those companies are obviously much more focused on energy engineering net operating income and those people generally will come from the engineering world financial engineering world and so that's the type of customer that you probably want to be in front of more times than any they understand it they've done their research the conversations are fluid the value is very immediate so you know those sort of two things is you know, you're dealing with a, a, a very qualified, interested person on the commercial side or the, the mush side. And on the multi-residential side, you're dealing with someone that has a different problem. And I think that those are the two really big aspects that differentiate the multi-residential world from the commercial or, or mush market. From an energy perspective or a behavioral perspective, I'd say they're not, they're unique in their own ways. But, you know, the fact that 40% of CO2 emissions come from buildings really makes you think everything that, you know, you go into, that's not your house, it's a building. So if someone was to go from a condo like you and me uh, to an office building, we're in our office building from probably something like nine to five. And then we're in our condo from five to nine. So the energy consumption patterns are quite unique if you actually look at what it's like to live in, in a condo and compare that to an office, but almost makes exact sense, right? You usually get up every day at the same time in your condo. Uh, You shower at the same time. 
you leave for work or maybe you work from home. Everybody eats generally around lunchtime. Everybody cooks generally around five, six o'clock. And that just repeats in perpetuity. So in a condominium, you really see this highly predictable pattern. And I think in the same in offices, right? And it's what I, I believe has made the uh, commercial industry much more ripe to adopt these types of solutions. You know, your office is open nine to five. The other hours of the day, you can basically turn a lot of things off, right? It's just not being used. The trick in condos, and I sort of go back to when I moved into a building, I didn't think they just had an on and off switch. But the way that property technology or I'd say real estate technology hasn't developed for, for a myriad of reasons, legislation, incentive, it has left buildings in that on off state. So the analogy I like to give is, you know, buildings sort of run like a light switch. It's pretty much right. They're built for peak. So they have to assume everybody using all of their equipment at the same time. So a lot of the common area systems are going to be sized for that. And with the lack of adoption of control, building management technology, better software, a lot of those buildings have been left to their own uh, devices. And, you know, so it's sort of this self-fulfilling perpetual problem that just keeps going on. But I think what that's allowed companies like Parity to do is really identify what is the problem for the different types of stakeholders in these markets and how do we build a really compelling value proposition and find good product market fit and really just you know focusing in on a very narrow market and a niche has allowed us to develop a significant footprint and learn i'd say a lot more about our particular customer so that we can service them better and build a product that is actually very conducive to what what they need I love that. Yeah, there's just so many things that are different about that. So we've had on the podcast, there's been several similar types of technologies, but they're all focused on different verticals. And the way that those technologies are applied are going to be totally different. Like you just said, just like the simple, if you're just talking about control sequences, for instance, you know, a typical office building is going to have that nine to five schedule, like you said, and they're going to have morning warm up and cool down. And it's all going to be based around that Monday through Friday. But, and we'll get into the actual product in a minute, but do you guys get into, is it just condo associations that are your main clients? Or are you getting into multifamily um, buildings that people are renting from one company? Or what is your approach there? Yeah, so, you know, multifamily as an umbrella is really, you know, multi-unit dwelling, MERVs, MRUs, I mean, a thousand acronyms for them. But that what we concentrate on is, is not so much the type of the building, it's the type of the customer. So as I said before, your home is, I'd say, a lot more sensitive than your workplace. So in a commercial building, I think the tenant concerns are very different than in a multi-residential uh, building okay, or a multi-use building. You might be able to deal with uh, a temperature you, you might not be able to control at your office throughout an eight-hour day, I don't know, by putting on a sweater. Maybe you complain about it once or twice, but in the end, you feel I'm not enabled to actually change that. But in your home, you know, it's like your safe place, it's your fiefdom, it's to sort of be in your own environment. And all those things are really important to you. You are at home, you want to be comfortable. You know, it's probably what's driven the adoption of like smart thermostats, right? It's like everybody wants that type of control in their home. But it's also like, again, it's your, your safe place. And if you own it, it's likely that your greatest asset or greatest investment. So you want to be in control. You don't want to not have hot water at some point. We're in a commercial building, maybe that's acceptable. 
you know, you want the temperature or the availability of, of cooling to a temperature that you want or heating to a temperature you want to always be there. You know, you probably don't want anyone limiting you from what you can do in your own home. Where, again, compared to the commercial or mush industry, it's you probably have a bit more leniency. In condos specifically, we deal with independent multi-residential condominium corporations, and we deal with rental groups or, or large okay. real estate owners. And in both, both of us are very aligned, right? We're all concentrated on everything that the customer needs when they need it. So the way that we look at that, and really part of what parity means is that optimal supply and demand ratio of never wasting energy or delivering too much to the building, but also at the same time, when demand increases, being able to react to demand and supply those utilities to a building. But a lot of it is really about having the control and ability to supply or not supply the critical utilities to be able to show energy savings and efficiency and meet demand and use different demand indicators and different algorithms to understand when a building actually needs something that you may be trying to save on and vice versa. Okay. Yeah. And I imagine part of that is, you know, in in the commercial world, there's this concept of tenant comfort and now it's becoming like tenant health and kind of growing into that whole, you know, virus mitigation concept. But I'd imagine the tenant concept is different. If it's someone's home, maybe the bands are smaller on the tenant comfort. It's like, if I own this unit, I want to be able to (laughs) control it to exactly the temperature that I want. I want to control it. So kind of getting into the platform a little bit, I think that's a good kind of jumping off point. So maybe just explain the concept of the platform first uh, and then we can kind of get into like whether you're able to control do anything with the tenant spaces or not i, I feel like that's like a, a line in the sand that might be difficult to cross but yeah can you kind of just talk about what the platform does and how you explain it to these condo associations yeah so i, I enjoy this question this is actually where i'd say we're we're quite unique so in comparison again to a commercial versus a multi-residential Commercial buildings will usually have a, a building manager or a building uh, facility mm. manager. Right. In a multi-residential building, you, you may have a superintendent. More times than not, you'll have a superintendent. There's products built for both verticals, right? One will enable a building manager or a facility manager to be able to do their job better or help them do their job better. The other vertical, there is none. There's no one to actually use that tool or be able to implement those changes that some platforms are recommending uneconomical, unfeasible, there's no one there to manage the project, the, there may be a, you know, a knowledge gap. I cannot imagine like the condo boards that I've been served by, I cannot imagine any of them being like, hmm, I'm going to go log into the analytics software and like manage the building, right? <laughs> they don't have time for that. They're just like you and I, where they're just like, it's a volunteer thing. They just need something that can kind of work on its own, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and I think that was the biggest, that was the biggest identifiable problem was that We'd really love to be more energy efficient. We just, we don't have anybody to do it. The classic providers of that technology were, you know, you look at the big bricks and mortar HVAC companies, Carrier, Johnson, Honeywell, Siemens, Schneider, all massive. They've all been producing these pieces of equipment and executing in a big, big way. Obviously, they're huge companies to, I would say, largely the commercial and, you know, mush markets, right? It's, that's, that's where they play well. That's where their service offering really resonates. You know, not that there isn't... Uh, you know, overlaps in the multi-residential as far as, you know, big equipment. But I think as an overall like service offering for a customer, they they really left a big gap by just not understanding really what that customer needed 
and how their business is organized or a corporation, a condominium corporation is organized and what that good product market fit is. Generally, you won't change a product that works for 90% of the market just for that latter 10%, assuming that you know you, you probably won't get the full market adoption of that, that latter market. So yeah, so really what do we do differently? It's we offer an energy efficiency as a service. So instead of offering an analytics platform or a new control platform or a better way for your building manager to manage their system, we offer it as a service where I'd say 50% of that stuff is done autonomous by you know developed customized algorithms that we basically program in place that replaces you know say a 20 person engineering team being in your building all the time and I, I will say as far as technology or sort of the availability of energy savings in HVAC equipment there's sort of there's three parts to it but fundamentally there is a point of diminishing returns and you probably have to really understand that and something we dug into really hard when we started and said where are our assets best allocated and our resources in our company and in the end we understood what is achievable what's within our capability and at what point is there a point of diminishing returns that maybe right now we don't want to invest in so you know figuring out where our technology you know fell into the categories of like super high performing sort of high performing and maybe low performing we said you know we think we're going to be a high performing company because we understand how systems work in buildings and what the availability of energy savings and reduction are on the whole for the large majority of people or the, the large majority of the problems and that's really what we focused our platform and you know the the savings algorithms that we use on was getting the biggest chunks out first but more of our resources were concentrating on making sure our customer was satisfied and that they are always first. So we have a very customer first focus because we deal with people in their homes. And if we ever put ourselves in their place, you know, that's, that's the way we want to be treated. So we treat our customers like we would treat ourselves. And I'd say that's, uh, that's predominantly what we build our energy efficiency as a service offering around was, you know, that type of customer. And so, well, let me kind of explain what I think I understand about the platform is that it's it's a supervisory control solution partly where you're pulling in data from any sort of hvac system you know like you mentioned Siemens, schneider johns controls whatever is already in the building you know all of the condos are being served with maybe hot or chilled water from the central plant that is probably not a lot unlike you know, traditional more commercial type of building systems you're pulling in data from that and then your the system is orchestrating with supervisory control sequences to optimize that right is that a good way to understand it yeah yeah okay. i mean you know across the board most companies that are doing this we're all working off the same building blocks yeah that's that's the i think that was probably the statement around we you know we understood that our technology as it was you know two years ago it really covered off reliably a lot of the large pieces of you know, value in HVAC energy savings and optimization that we wanted to. We saw a path to incrementally increase it. And, you know, in parallel, we are doing that. But we didn't want to invest a bunch of time into something that, again, made those incremental changes where we said, we think we just need to be able to understand our customer better. But yeah, a lot of what we do is a, it's a supervisory layer. We're hardware agnostic. We like that. 
because we can basically tie into any type of equipment, any piece of machinery. It allows us to address a lot more buildings than maybe some other people who only play with certain types of, of proprietary equipment or deal with certain providers of equipment. Yeah, that was that was one of the big pieces you know we concentrated on early days was saying, you know, how do we get the most for the most amount of people and obviously continue to build that that innovative technology, but overall is you know, finding out does that product do everything that it needs to do for the, the customer. Yeah, and our, our core readers of Nexus on the blog side will be sick of me talking about advanced supervisory control, but it seems like I need to write something about how it especially plays well in this market. I think they're sick of me talking about it at this point, so maybe I'll, I'll, wait, <laughs> I'll wait a few months. So, so okay, so that's kind of, like you said, that's like 50% of it. The other half of it is this concept of as a service, or I, I guess the question would be, what is the other 50% where is it like your team kind of handholding these condo associations in the energy efficiency journey? Is that the other side of it? So I'd say partially, yes, there's the way we approach uh, a new customer or a condo is, again, we put ourselves back in their shoes. We're condo owners. Uh, a lot of us here, are, you know, we live in Toronto, we live in condos. And we sort of just say, like, if someone presented us with this type of product, what would we understand? When we started out, you know, in the condominium industry, you know, we started with commercial buildings. We started with schools. And it was, it was a bit different because it was like, yeah, there's lots of competition and this is the kind of product we need. And, you know, we were looking at it from a condominium perspective going, that's really unique because, like, those aren't, those aren't problems that, you know, condos or uh, people or rental owners have, they have most of the problems come from the tenants that are in their buildings. So how do we build a better product for those people? So we said, you know, what are the biggest problems that they're, they're, they need to overcome? One was obviously cost, access to capital, various, you know, bylaws, restrictions in nonprofit organizations that don't necessarily allow you to borrow lots of money, uh, finance long term. So we said, okay, how do we solve that problem for you? The other one was, you know, again, you and I, if we were on a condo board and we were volunteers, we're consumers, right? So we like consumer products, right? We really like how they're marketed to us. We really like how uh, we understand them. We get all the nice things that consumer products offer. You know, example, I, I ordered something, you know, a couple of weeks ago from online and it was, you know, guaranteed refund if it doesn't look like it does in the, the photo. You know, I, I only had to pay for half of it when I ordered it. And like, those are all things that like we like, right? It's like, yeah, I like those things. Those fit our market. And so we sort of said, how do we build a product that actually fits this consumer type B2B, B2B to C uh, customer? And really those were, those were the big things was, we don't have access to capital to adopt this technology. Everything we've heard about the technology, there's been a lot of big claims in the past, a lot of promises made, and not a lot of them seen through. We don't really understand what's going on. We're just told that it's happening, you know, from an energy efficiency perspective, the classic way to look and see if something worked is look at your bill the next month. There's lots of problems associated with just doing that. But I think overall, from a consumer perspective, energy efficiency hasn't built a product that really focuses on you know, serving what a customer needs, which is guarantees, data, you know, education, really consumer friendly looks and feels and and, you know, sometimes just a person on the other end of the phone that, you know, can relate to what they're going through. Companies like Ecobee and Nest, right, they've nailed that with the smart thermostat. 
where we've had thermostats for, you know, like a hundred years, but it, it took a very long time for someone to say, why doesn't anybody use these things? Right? It right. just didn't work. And that's really the same journey we're embarking on is really understanding like, like how do we build a better product for the type of customer that, that really needs the solution? Cool. That's really cool. I think my last question around the platform would be like, I think I heard you on different podcasts talking about the types of AI that you're using and you earlier talked about the umbrella. So could you kind of clarify, this is one of my favorite questions, by the way, is like, can we, can we start to cut through the buzzwords a little bit and like talk about what types you guys are using and how you normally talk about that? Or do you talk about it? Yeah, I'll answer. It's a bit of a two-part question. We don't talk about it a lot, especially with our customers. It's again, it's not something that it's not something I think even to us as, as consumers is as important as mm. it may be to someone that is looking for that edge. I think up until recently, and maybe even still, it scares some people. You know, there's been instances of you know, some of the most advanced AI doing things that we never predicted it doing. And, and you know, frankly, I mean, to me, if you ask me what gets me excited, it's artificial intelligence. I think it's, uh, I've said this probably in every conversation I've had, is like we have just rubbed away the condensation from the window we're not anywhere near the potential of what is going to happen in the next say, five, 10 years. It's going to be incredible to see. But from a customer's perspective, it has very little weight. It doesn't offer me anything better. It sounds like there's a possibility of something going wrong really bad. So we don't market it. You know, that being said, there is some seriously robust technology behind what we do from an engineering uh, perspective on HVAC systems, but also from a machine learning perspective, deep mm. learning to be more specific with the data that we collect, you know, in a, in a deep learning algorithm is to sort of delineate, you know, AI goes from an if and else statement to linear regression, multi-linear supervised, you know, deep learning, reinforced learning. And obviously the more complex models you can develop. And, you know, once you start getting into neural networks, I mean, you get right down to quantum computing, but again, what what is that point of diminishing returns right now? And so, yeah, through our collaboration with the Ryerson's Building Science team, we've developed uh, two or three deep learning algorithms that really allow us to do things like forecasting, okay. you know, heat loss calculations, but do it in fractions of a second every single minute. And those are the important gains that you're going to get in a technology, but somewhat being expected by a consumer. I expect my Google Maps to know absolutely everything. That's just how we're built. But there is actually some seriously advanced machine learning behind those layers. But when you see Google Maps, no one says AI Maps claims that there's an artificial intelligence driving it. Because to us as a consumer, we just come to expect that the technology is at a level that it is delivering what we want as a consumer of that product. So, you know, again, largely what we do are anywhere from linear regression, multilinear, all the way to heating and cooling systems largely have much more advanced systems tied to them that are in continuous learning, supervised, albeit, but continuous learning. Got it. Cool. So let's shift as we kind of get towards wrapping up here. Let's shift over. So it's August. That was today, August 13th. And you know, we're still in the middle in the US, at least in the middle of this pandemic. And I mean, one of the things that 
is relevant to our conversation here is I'm spending, I mean, everyone's spending a lot more time at home, right? So I have to imagine that the load profile of the average condo building has changed quite a bit. And so what, what have you seen and what have the implications been for your clients there? It's a really good question. I have to say when we started the company, part of our linchpin was condos have done the same thing for a hundred years, right? They, they, they always have the same occupancy level. People are, people are uh, creatures of habit, right? They leave every day, they come mm-hmm. home, and on average, that all varies out to the exact same behavioral data points. And then a pandemic. You know, the first time, you know, since, like, I don't even know if we had condos in uh, 1918, but, you know, it's like the first time in 100 years that we've had this unprecedented shift from, you know, us going to offices 9 to 5, being out at our workplaces, coming home at 5 o'clock, waking up. So it was wild when it happened. I was like, this is the first time in history this is actually being done. And of course, we built a whole company around this thesis of always do the same thing. So it, it definitely put us in a spot where we were like, what does this mean? Have we, you know, our, was our timing way off? You know, is this going to change the, the mindset of customers or path parity? And then some really strange and good things started to happen. What we did notice is because what we do is we look at all systems and we try and use demand indicators in a building as data inputs to supply algorithms. And there's some really unique ones that we use. What we noticed was even though there was a lot more people home a lot more of the time, and you could probably say there's a combination of like this all landed in shoulder seasons. And for everybody listening, I think they'll know what a shoulder season is as far as energy and HVAC. But it did land in shoulder seasons. But the big component of the pandemic, and I'd say that the biggest change is water. And water is one of the fastest rising utilities across North America right now. But everybody's washing their hands a lot more. We saw crazy water increases. And I guess just to bring that into context, water is a capital fixture utility. It gets consumed by toilets, shower heads, faucets, you know, sprinkler systems, all of which are hard to control through digital controls. (laughs) It's much more of a capital fixture consumable uh, so and it's owned by the individuals not by the condo association or the apartment uh, building yeah in most cases but i'd say in probably like 50 percent of the cases it's owned oh. by the condominium corporation really okay so the condo corporation will pay the bill they'll take that they'll spread it out into the condo fee uh, right because it's metered yeah it's metered centrally yeah i think what now i that varies. is the, the tenants own the toilets like right so that so changing out the capital there would be on them or is that not true either that's true yeah okay in condominiums mm-hmm. now you know there is actually i should say in most cases it depends i've seen both i've seen where corporations will own the thermostat fan quote heat pump unit toilets and it's their responsibility to actually pay for it i mean in the end if you sort of draw a box around this stuff a nonprofit organization they all make decisions together, no matter who ends up actually changing it, mm. everybody that owns the asset eventually benefits. Right. Um, okay. So I wouldn't say totally a moot point, but when it comes to decision and dollars out, it's it's definitely more of a more to the point. Hmm. So again, one of the biggest changes we saw was, was water consumption and it was okay. immediate. So, you know, anywhere from five up to fifteen percent immediate immediate change. And those deltas on water are actually significant. Sort of never never before seen. Hot water obviously consumption. So I think it won't really matter where you are in North America. I can think of a couple nuanced places, but usually you're using a fossil fuel to heat your hot water. Mm. I'd say in probably recent years, the last 10 years, there has been a push towards electrification. 
So electric hot water heaters or on-demand hot water heaters, which again, it's sort of a, it's a cost benefit analysis that you have to do to make that decision. But from a CO2 perspective, it depends on what power market you're in, what the distribution of, of actual power production is like to determine if that's a more efficient way or, or a carbon efficient way to produce hot water. But on the whole, hot water is heated by a fossil fuel. It's usually natural gas. So we did see a spike in natural gas consumption, obviously. But I guess the point I'm getting to is overall, what we've seen is because buildings have largely been way oversupplied or sort of that analogy of like giant on switch, they've just been you know, running on. And it's for, for your listeners to better understand that. Imagine running, you drink coffee, I, I drink coffee. I probably have one at nine, one, maybe two or three, get over that hump. But if I ran the coffee maker 24 7, 365, just so that those three times a day was there, hot and ready, which is really what we expect to, to happen. But having it run consistently and stay hot and ready and fresh, that's obviously there's like 99% waste. Mm. So that's sort of the analogy I use in buildings that are, you know, maintaining a hot water temperature all day long, running their, their boiling system at 140 degrees, just so that when someone may want a hot shower, it's there available and ready very simple things you know you can do with the with like a hot water is you know you, you look at the, the return temperature on it if you're sending it out at 140 and it's coming back at 140 probably a good indication you know nobody's using it so yeah i mean overall we get back to my point we saw a change but it didn't change really the impact that we were having on buildings mm, okay. and i think that's because we were still catering largely to the full supply and demand equation of the building. And although we did see changes in, you know, people, an increase in hot water, an increase in water consumption, there's not really going to be a lot of change in electricity usage. You know, right now we are seeing probably larger than higher peaks in chiller usage because everybody is home. We've, we've had some, some pretty hot summers here in, in the, the GTA anyways, or some hot days here. But I think uh, probably what we've seen over the last couple of months is there is actually a lot more people getting back out, right? Okay. And being energy conscious. I think, you know, a lot of the condos or the corporations we've talked to actually have, you know, like announcements out to say, guys, we're home a lot more. What that means from an energy perspective, especially in a condo, is these costs are going to go up. We haven't budgeted for these costs. A condo mm -hmm. sets a budget every single year. That's what dictates the condo fee. So if we're using 20% more in utilities or a stark way to look at it is we're home hundred percent more of the time. So therefore, if that, you know, applied in a linear relationship to the cost of utilities yeah. and the amount of money, that's a two X factor on most things. So mm -hmm. you would expect your you know, cost of gas to be two times, cost of water to be two times, cost of electricity to be two times. So that's what you expect to see in the, in reality, not everybody went home. Not yeah. everybody is using their cooling at the same time. Not everybody is showering at the same time. So on the whole, I'd say the impact was was seen. It was visible, uh, again, ranging from 5 to 15% on average more consumption in things like water, uh, gas, maybe uh, electricity. But what this has done is, and, and you know, speaking to the pandemic and this whole bubble analogy of like, you know, make sure you're mitigating your risk, right? You wear a mask, right? Try and interact with, you know, your inner circle or your you know, 10 person circle as we've done in Canada. It's really shined a light on the advantages of remote control and, you know, having the ability to do things like turn up air systems, change set points, 
problem solve from afar. Help see our clients that have an energy management system in their buildings, look at it and go, you know, they're, they're very thankful. They're like, we're so glad we have this now because yeah, it's going to be a huge cost mitigator next year when we have to go back and look at the budget and say, listen, we were in a, a shortfall because we were all using more gas, more electricity, more water, but having parity in the building uh, as a service, they know and they can take comfort and, and have some peace of mind knowing someone's managing this for us the best they possibly can. So they're mitigating our risk the best they possibly can. And I think that's really shone a light in a positive way. And we've had a lot more, you know, uh, customers, buildings, referrals, uh, a lot more excitement around the technology that we're actually providing in our, in our market because of the pandemic. So, you know, I think, as I said in the beginning, it's like, we, we were like, wow, this is a first, like literally a first in a hundred years. And we thought it would mean very bad things, but it actually turned out to mean a lot of really good things. Hmm. And I think this is what this industry needs on the whole is it, it needs more education. More people need to be talking about the benefits of it. The adoption needs to happen in every single sector. There's room for people to play everywhere. And, you know, I know a bunch of great companies that are addressing a lot of these problems in different verticals. And, you know, I, I'm really excited for all of us because I, I think real estate technology is just, it, it hasn't developed like every other aspect of our lives. And so, yeah, maybe this is sort of a turning point for property technology. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly echoed in the last one, last podcast with, with Deb Noller from Switch. She's basically said, uh, you know, along the same lines, seeing more, seeing acceleration in, yeah, building owners and, and their customers kind of shifting and making a big shift. So it's, I think it's pretty awesome to hear that that's the same in your market. So kind of closing off here, I want to hear kind of what it sounds like you guys are doubling your staff. That that might be one of the things you're excited about, but uh, what are you excited about with the next maybe six months to a year for Parity? Yeah. So, you know, we, we've expanded down into the U.S. That's really exciting. Despite the challenges in COVID, you know, we're, we're a very remote focused team. You know, when all of this happened and we were forced to get everybody working from home, we were able to do it in, in less than 24 hours. I think what we didn't realize was we actually operated virtually in an office and we did that for various reasons. It's, it keeps us flexible as a company, but it also allows us to build you know, large networks of installers, large networks of, you know, finance providers, equipment suppliers. And we're really just like this engineering facilitating service in the middle that allows, you know, suppliers of all these great technologies and the people that have the skill sets to be able to install this stuff and then us being able to pull it all together and create that good product market fit so we you know we act as that 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 middle layer and you know moving into the us it's what really allows us as a company to to move very quickly and reach scale is we're not relying on you know hundreds of people or lots of infrastructure or trucks on the road or techs out in the the field we know that those companies exist and those markets are hungry and they need new products and companies like us to, you know, to sort of break the way old things have been done and introduce new efficient ways. And that, that's what we're seeing. So, you know, moving into the U.S., you know, via virtually has been a big proof point around that is, is allowed us to, without ever actually physically going you know, to a building, we can spec, do a walkthrough, do a building energy assessment, work with engineers and installers to actually define this scope, you know, understand exactly what needs to be achieved in the building. And then ultimately remotely bringing everything online 
you know, that's, that's what I'm finding exciting. Obviously the early days of that were much more manual where you needed people out at sites confirming, you know, when I click a button here, it does what I'm saying here. And it's really helped, you know, build out our quality assurance process is just understanding like, you know, how do we deliver this quickly? You know, percentage done right, percentage done on time. How do we get those, those numbers crossing that, you know, 95 to hundred percent mark. And again, yeah, moving into the U.S. without being able to travel down there, it's really forced us to fortify a lot of those those systems. And uh, yeah, now that that we're there and we're we're growing both domestically and and in the U.S., it's uh, I think it's a it's a real testament to the the capability of remote work and having remote teams. And what sort of partners are you looking to to sort of partner up with in these all these local markets? Yeah. So uh, without naming names, you know, we have partners from very large HVAC suppliers. We have partners that are property management companies, which uh, we feel are, are very conducive right. to uh, you know, what we're doing. But so, you know, in the US, um, we're already working with like you know, large rental companies in their multi-residential portfolios. And those are the types of people we, we wanna be able to work with are you know, the HVAC mechanical suppliers, right? That's probably one of our biggest strategic partners in, in the buildings we work in is they're a major stakeholder. We don't have people on the road, on the ground. We don't have necessarily those you know, mechanical service expertise per se in those exact instances where you may need someone on site. So we make sure that we work with those networks of you know, mechanical suppliers that every single building has, make sure that we can deliver them value. We're making their job easier, making their business model more efficient for them so that everybody is winning in the end. But yeah, I mean, you know, I would, would say we, we, we don't work in commercial. We don't yeah. work in you know municipal universities, schools, hospitals. We really understand our customer really well. Yeah. We understand the nuances that multi-residential building owners deal with and what condominium corporations or co-ops deal with. And we really focus our product and our efforts of service around that customer. And that's a, that's a big differentiator. And that's that's what I'm really excited about is, is continuing to to build a better product and a better service that you know really bring a cohesive value to all the stakeholders in that market. Cool. Well, this has been fascinating for me. I've I've been digging into different verticals. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was deep down a rabbit hole with big box retail and refrigerated retail, and this has been kind of feeding me in that new way, which is like, how does how do all these same problems show up in these different ways in these different buildings? So. Thank you for taking me through that and educating me and everyone else. And really, really want to wish you luck on getting into the U.S. and really expanding past that because what you guys are doing is is awesome. So, so thanks, Brad, and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great, James. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, please subscribe at nexus.substack.com. You can find show notes for this conversation there as well. As always, please reach out on LinkedIn with any thoughts on this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.